Welcome back to Good Morning, Gabriella. I'm Amaterasu. As always, I hope you're having a good Terra morning as we are coming to the close of the month on the Eve of Lament. And today in the arts, we have a rare treat for you. Some of you may be aware of an up-and-coming audio drama called Stone Spring Maidens, a fictionalized account of two heroines meeting from our world and one of our brother worlds, falling in love and averting a horrible tragedy from our past. Today, Good Morning Gabriella is excited to present an interview with the creators of said audio drama, hosted in another brother world by two enterprising fellows who speak at length weekly about the fictional serial this story comes from in audio recordings known in their world as a podcast. <laughs> Without further introduction, I give you to these charming gentlemen from Through the Window Productions. Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Welcome back to Through the Wind Door. Behind the White Scarves edition. First off, I'd like to thank the producers over at Good Morning Gabriella for agreeing to host our interview today and give a big welcome to all our watchers from the great world of autumn. We have a lot to learn from our neighbors, and I'm glad to contribute to this ongoing effort at sharing each other's cultures. Secondly, I'm very proud to welcome back to our show a woman who needs no introduction, actress, Editor, businesswoman, and powerful creative force, Sharon Shaw. Hello. Finally, it's important to give kudos to this humble gentleman who somehow in between keeping the house and raising a child finds the time to write 13 whole books over the past eight years, not to mention his latest, sharing the fictionalized events leading up to the assault on the Aphrodite Laboratories in Gabriella. It's clearly due to Sharon's support that he's able to manage this creative endeavor. So let's give a warm welcome to her husband, Alexander Shaw. Happy to be here on whatever television thing this is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, this is not going to be something I was going to try to continue more than just the opening. I just, I... <laughs> yeah. he, cool. Greg shared that with me ahead of time and I gave my full support to that. <laughs> Good morning, Gabriella. Okay. <laughs> okay, it's not that imaginative, but I figured that the part... No, I like it. <laughs> Next time good. you have to roar it like Robin Williams would. <laughs> I mean... Good morning, Gabriella. <laughs> uh, well, let's get right to it then. Since we first interviewed you in 2019... A lot has happened. Four books published, many more proposed down the road, including your recently revealed vampire novel. Very excited about that. We've also had the opportunity to learn a lot more about how Phase One originally came out, mm -hmm. the various iterations, how you ended up interrupting your work on Steamheart to write three other books in that world. And how Uncivil Outlaw was a natural progression from the story that you began with Secret Rooms. Stone Spring Maidens, however, is the first real divergence from what you started with. 
it continues Harry Arlington's story as well as picking up the plot from Steamheart, but it also introduces us to a very different kind of world, along with a genre that you've never fully tackled as a writer and only slightly touched on in School of Movies, romance. So to start with, we're curious about hearing, when did you first start outlining Stone Spring Maidens? When and why did you decide to make it a romance? And was it always your intention to have it be a dual romance, or did the added content of Gany and Attar come as a result of the writing? I started outlining Stone Spring Maidens when I had the character of Harry hammered out for Arlington. So this would have been about, I suppose, like halfway through phase one. Even before Steamheart, you had... Before, yeah, oh yeah. Um, Mm. I I was like, right, okay. So, I mean, the the way I introduce Harry in Arlington is so that she can jump into Steamheart fully formed. But in doing so, I was like, right, so where is she going to go after this? And then I worked out the the journey she'd go on and then just realized quite how much she'd lose over the course of that journey and then took even more away from her so that she could be at her absolute lowest point when we pick back up with her in phase two. Mm. So uh, you're right. It was the first one that I um, started conjuring a whole brand new plot for, but uh, I think I, when I created Abigail and James, it was like there's going to be a civil war at some point later mm. on. So like that was very much a kind of as it was created with the characters, put a pin in that for later. But yeah, Stunspring was the the second thing that I started cooking up before the Princess Thieves, actually, now that I think about it. But it was very much going to be a... Oh, the other, the other major reason that... Um, uh, I wanted to do it. It was because uh, it's not revealed in Arlington, but Harry being gay, I was like, right, so I can do a gay relationship. And because around about the time we were finishing up Arlington and starting up the Princess Thieves, that's when Theo joined the cast. And as you might remember, I'd already started mapping out, well, I'd already mapped out Stone Spring Maidens. And the end of Arlington required truth to be still back in washington so not on the Steamheart trip if i could have finangled it when i realized how great theo was i'd have gotten truth on uh Steamheart as well if for no other reason than she would have been like fire to abigail's eye saw the other way around they would have sparked off each other all the time but i feel like doing that actually would have um even if i could have wangled it would have taken the focus off of the dynamic between annie and yeah. abby so I, I sort of exported that friction between them, but also showed just how pissed off with each other they would be in the early stages of Steamheart. But mm. Theo was fantastic, and I wanted her on Team Steam. So I had to start thinking way into the future. When are these when these survivors of this journey reconvene? How am I going to get Theo there in a way that feels like she's part of the gang? Because the way that Truth comports herself, she's actually better as a character who's not part of the gang. She's actually better Mm. as a character who makes things on a bigger scale happen and not necessarily a constant ally. I just generally wanted to have Theo be able to provide a voice for, for the stuff going forwards. And then all the cat stuff started reforming and the princess thieves took off and just all of that kind of coalesced and i hadn't even thought of let them go at that point but when it came down to it the idea of being able to write a gay romance in a world where that wasn't too weird and in fact was totally normal uh it it presented itself as autumn is almost there because 
we can't do loads of things in Century because everyone's just too straight-laced back then. They don't even have words for things we need to do. Yeah. By design, it is meant to be this potential for a turning point but we're not there yet and yeah. we keep encountering roadblocks and resistance and mm. the way that stone spring ends up is such a it's one of those books that simultaneously like so uplifting and filled with hope but it is bittersweet because just as you're seeing all these things about this world that feel like ah, oh, they i would so like to be somewhere that has itself figured out like it figures out as much of its own shit as this place does. Not all of it, but a good deal more than us. And then you get the political result in the final act of the book, and you think, fuck, it's it's going to get a whole lot harder, isn't it? And this is a tradition where a lot of the time in these interviews I come in, and it's not even with questions, it's just... Wasn't it cool when this happened? Or aren't you cool for making this happen? So that's kind of my role. Uh, Greg is here to steer the operation. I'm here to like look out of the windows and say, oh, isn't that nice? There was a third part to that question as well. Uh, was mm. it always my intention to have a dual romance? Mm. Uh, after I'd worked out that Autumn could be run by women, and this actually is based on a much older idea I'd had uh, a while back. It's not even an idea. I'd had a story type that I decided to incorporate. I thought, okay, I really need to tell a trans narrative that feels authentic. And again, doing it in century. I think the way I described it to you, Sharon, was uh, that you know, if, if someone sort of stepped forward and said, this is who I am, the response in century would be, yeah, 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 fine, go and kill that Wendigo. And it just wouldn't have that sense of social relevance so we needed to have a less embattled people who were more advanced to have yeah. that. And then as so it went by, I decided that rather than just looking at, at queer pain, I'd actually work on maybe for having this prickly trans character slowly come out of their shell and, and sort of let someone in so that we could kind of maximum humanize both of them. It certainly makes sense that there is a sort of social infrastructure in place for some characters like Calendula, it provides this network that it will be impossible for her to really extricate herself out of because that's where she's built up her existence. And for Atta, there's all manner of things that he encounters there that he would not in century. He would encounter something entirely different, but I think it carries the weight it does because it takes place in autumn. You, you need, I think, a degree of peace in order to have a certain amount of social progress. You can have individual mm. progress, absolutely, in a, in a war story. And, you know, individual people making their own arcs through that kind of environment absolutely can happen. But ultimately, war, it breaks down aspects of society and it destroys things. And it, it's kind of, it works counter to... The idea of a group of a group of people being able to progress forward, I think, and and not hang on to the things that they're afraid of, mm. because they're too afraid to let them go. War and mm. plague. Mm. Mm. They draw focus and energy, and it means that that energy can go towards something else. But also with autumn, with the crystal knights and everything there, that actually means that. Even the conflicts that are happening, it's kind of like one of those proxy wars that is getting waged. 
the one thing I wanted to bring up is that being able to explore the sexuality spectrum and the gender spectrum through an alternate world is mm. kind of what allows it to sort of bring it front and center and actually have these conversations being like, this is the way it is in our world, as opposed to your world, where also some of the racial differences uh, come into play. We actually don't even know if there is any kind of racial contention in Autumn, because while it doesn't, there doesn't appear to be anything that's established based on treatment of skin color in Gabriella, at least, we already know that there are multiple nations mm. in Autumn. So we don't know that it's the same everywhere or anything like that. Yeah. Whereas, mm. whereas just think in... of the analog of our own globe in certain mm. places of the world, it's like, oh, you know what? We're more cool and progressive and you're not going to get the same treatment in Sweden as mm. you do in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. Whereas in back in time plus space, some of that, modern stuff is always in the background in terms of main characters, but also in terms of the conversations that get to happen in the background, just offhandedly mentioning, oh, this person is that, and this person is in a relationship with that person. And it's mm. all very clearly far more progressive than the world of Century, but it's just like, that's that's normal for this person in this culture, in the place that they've uh, established themselves mm. it's it's all background i think the structure of having a two worlds collide type story as well allows for the examining of what might be considered in one world the standard but through a window of well if you're looking at two worlds which are given equal weight there is no standard because what's quote unquote normal here is very different from what's normal here and the way their conversations play out allows them to look at each other's normal from different angles yeah it certainly presents uncertainty as to where the story will end up because you get a sense of what is normal in both of these worlds and the question comes up multiple times that Harry is turning over in her head. Does she want to stay here in autumn? But we hear why she is compelled to give a damn about Century and about her home. And it means that by the time you're done, you haven't necessarily stepped out of either world. You still have a foot in both of them. Absolutely. I, I do wonder if part of what Harry's motives are in wanting to stay is that this is a world that is more peaceful and it's a place where her parents' legacy might actually have more of a chance of taking hold and travelling forwards mm. because what she's started to get wind of back in Century is how hard it's going to be to allow that legacy to flourish. And it's also the first time that Harry has actually transported herself to another world. She's seen and brushed up against inhabitants of other worlds through Frau and everything that happened in Steamheart. But this is the first time when she's endured so much pain and trauma that has happened in her world that she gets to transport herself and place herself somewhere else 
where none of that happened in that world. It still happened to her, but there's not going to be conversations or infrastructures that demand that she confront what has happened to her or what the legacy of her parents are and what her place in it is and what her responsibilities are to the technology of the government she has provided technology for. She's transplanted herself to somewhere that she can go through a recovery. And whenever we're somewhere that we get to rest and heal and recover, and I say this from experience, it's always very tempting to stay where that is. It's the, and... it's the cave of the goddess. Mm. The goddess that Sharon refers to here is, of course, a reference back to Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. But listening to Toby talk also reminded me of an episode of Deep Space Nine. I know, you thought I was going to say The West Wing, but for the first time, I'm pulling from another show. In the episode titled It's Only a Paper Moon, a member of the ensemble cast is similarly recovering from the loss of a leg, and even though he has his own technical replacement, he is reluctant to re-enter his own life, as there is similarly still a war going on at that point in the story, and he's carrying around PTSD from the battle that cost him a leg, and nearly took his life. He chooses to lose himself in a fictional world in the holodeck, run by a sentient hologram, where he can exist in a world apart from his own and recover from his wounds. As a result, the protagonist doesn't want to go back to his old life, and it becomes the responsibility of the hologram character to remove that safety net so that he can face his fears that stand in the way of completing the healing process. It's obviously a very different story, with a different ending, and I doubt it's one that Alex is familiar with, given his complex relationship with Star Trek and TV. But it is weirdly synchronistic that both stories include the loss of legs. On the subject of romance, while we were preparing for this interview, Greg and I did discuss whether Stone Spring Maidens was in fact the first romance of New Century when I actually felt that Let Them Go had enough romantic elements to its identity to fit that bill. Greg did contest this and uh, we had uh, we have our arguments, it happens, pointing out that the driving force of the plot in Let Them Go is not the romance, which has been in limbo for many years, but actually... Rebecca's struggle to survive what she has lost, both slowly yet relentlessly over many years, and suddenly and cruelly over the course of one night. Still, even if Let Them Go veers more towards gothic horror than gothic romance, I find the romance to be such a crucial part of Let Them Go's makeup because it illustrates what could have been, which is central to the novel's thematic emphasis of grieving the life you thought you might lead. We mourn the different path that life took when we hear Rebecca's romantic past with Rafe and the romantic alternative ending which emerges at the end with Amanda's final letter proposes what she suggests and we know that that can never be stings us because it was so close that if just one or two things went differently that could have happened. But, as the listeners will have probably figured out by now, this interview is not about Let Them Go, but (laughs) Stone Spring Maidens. And in Stone Spring Maidens, it doesn't shape up that way. Penny manages to make the choice she needs to in time to seize her relationship with Harry. And 
while it was hard going for a while there, it is an unabashed romantic ending and we love to see it. So the question, which I took a very long and winding path to get to, <laughs> is was there a catharsis in being able to finally develop a romantic plot that ends exactly how we hope when some of New Century's other romances have not been so fortunate in that regard? Yes with an and, <laughs> no with a but. Um, <clears throat> let me think. I mean, on, on one level, uh, it was the anti-kill-your-gaze uh, mm. trope, because I was... Okay, couple of things. First off, you're absolutely right. I do seem to have sort of developed all of these romances, and then I seemingly cruelly stop them just about at the point where they're about to flourish. Uh, mm. Because... I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, there are worse things that can happen to a character and much more interesting things that can happen to a character uh, than death. And heartbreak is one of them. And I don't like breaking my character's heart and I don't like keeping my characters apart. And I want it to work out for them in the end. But then there's a certain level of once you get together during wartime, it then becomes even more of a sort of just trying to snatch the, the only moments of, I mean, look at what Butler and Annie had to, yeah. how they had to live missing each other all the time and worried about each other and then eventually this devastating state of loss and mm. James and Abigail's relationship seemed to have always been compromised and always been set aside because their ideals are so strongly opposing and they've both grown a hell of a lot over the past few books so I guess well, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, there later but with this First off, I wanted it to be a gay romance where it was like, yes, it's a gay romance, as opposed to, oh, we couldn't actually show them kissing. We couldn't actually show them holding hands, but you can read stuff into it if you want to, um, <laughs> queers. And uh, it's, it's, it's tiresome. But I think I've already expressed this one uh, already in some capacity. I think it was when we were doing the Loki show which actually might have been one of the, the time when you were like, I am so sick of, of uh, being on camera. Uh, uh, Victoria was angry that Loki's counterpart uh, didn't turn out to be trans. And it just, it, under, it crystallized uh, that it's not enough that stories do it. We want the main stories to do it. We want the big stories to do it. And we want, let's face mm. it, Disney to do it. We want mm. Disney to tell the world, you know what? This is fine. And actually have the fucking guts to push through with that. It's a process of normalisation. And I think people have gotten used to looking for subtext. Mm. And we're getting a bit tired of it always having to be subtext. Mm. Uh, this being a relatively small but loyal uh, listener base and, and readership, you know, it's it's among a whole bunch of queer fiction because we writers can do whatever we like. We aren't beholden to a fucking, you know, great big media conglomerate, except the ones who are, who can't do anything they like. I was just about like. to say, and independent writers are even more able yeah. to experiment because they're not beholden to a publisher. So weirdly, the less answerable you are, the less money you make, the less power you have, the less reach the you have, an audience the smaller got. an audience you have, the more <laughs> substantive subversion of tropes you can actually undertake in your work. So if you're writing just for yourself, you're like, fuck it, I can have any ending I want. But in this scenario, I wanted there to be a, uh, a romance that felt like a heterosexual person who had never really read any gay fiction could listen or read and go, 
Oh, okay. Yeah, so it it all it's 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 basically the same as if you're hetero. It's just that the the chromosomes are, are, are identical rather than opposing. That's it. It just it I need I wanted it to feel like it meant something different to Harry than it does to Penny because of the worlds they come from. But to us the reader, we are able to sort of push aside the social constructs of both worlds one of which we know is very closely linked with our distant past, reflective of our present and probably our future. The other one of which is a amber reflection of our present and near past and, again, potentially a better future. It's almost like two sides of a mirror, but the core is, when it comes down to it, it's just the, it's the same dynamics as any romance. Love and is romance love is love novel. is love. Mm. Mm. It's so important to make LGBT stories front and centre and part of the main text because having an LGBT character in something is part of the subtext. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot you can do with that because the subtext tends to only extend as far as this person is gay or this person is trans and so okay and what else can we do with that because spoilers that's not where the story ends it's like you want to be able to expand on that and until you make it part of the not just a nice fetching scarf that you put on at the top but like part of the core dna of a project you can't let that flourish and evolve and do something more with it than just generate endless clickbait articles that all read the same of this is our first gay character we've ever had and it's like we know you say this every year it's <laughs> not it's really not look we've been talking about Timon and Pumba for years now just accept it move on and just but that's the thing. We want them to 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 mm. send that message out, and they won't. It's so, it's the frustrating thing because mm -hmm. I referred to it back in uh, like 2013. I was like, well, they're actually moving forwards now. We're actually getting kind of more progressive here. And I was like, it's okay, baby steps. And then mm. a, a, another thing I mentioned on School of Movies was they've done baby steps up to the point when they've reached a wall. They are now nose to that wall, and they're going baby steps, and they're just walking in place. Just, just Little baby the steps wall. in place. Little they're not making step. any progress. They're just <laughs> treading the same <laughs> fucking worn ground. Also, like as a video anybody... game character, just sort of going bump, <laughs> exactly. bump, yeah, bump, just bump. bumping against okay. a wall, not knowing where to go now. You're clipping the mountain at this point. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a gay in this one. You had a gay in the last one. <laughs> but the the thing is though as anybody who's read 15 20 book series in sci-fi or fantasy canon before if you have 200 relationships and they're all just this standard heteronormative yep yep i've seen it it's boring <laughs> <laughs> could we bring in a it's little so bit of diversity there's so. also a large issue with having this sort of stuff only in subtext because if people are used to looking for subtext then you have the whole experience which was recently touched on the discord recently of like shipping wars where people see subtext where none was necessarily intended and then having arguments over whether fictional characters are or should be in a relationship or not when there might be perfectly good reasons to be like, no, we should be able to have 
a relationship between these two characters and have them just be friends and have that be okay. Not everything needs to be a romance. Or the fact that, oh yes, we do actually have gay characters legitimately in this story that we're pursuing stuff with, but no, people are focusing on these characters over here and saying, these people have an amazing dynamic together, they should have a gay romance. It... People will always take the characters that they personally vibe with the most and want to see more going on with those characters, and that's absolutely fine. Ultimately, from my perspective, people fighting on social media is something that I really try and... Oh, yeah. We, we gave like, up on Twitter oh, years God. ago. We gave up, We erased Facebook from our computers and mm. iPads years and years ago. Yeah, I don't even have a Twitter account anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, so, so whenever this start, start, start like the bickering starts on the Discord, which is rare, because mm. we have a really great community. But when it does start, I'm like, oh god, <laughs> don't bring that in here. We yeah, like it doesn't accomplish anything. What What seems to happen with mainstream media a lot is there's a half-hearted attempt to normalize and then like alex said they hit seem to hit a wall of well we want to normalize but not too much Mm. so everything's still got reins on it also the straights are so obsessed with bathrooms like they think that it's 99 percent of the whole trans issue is bathrooms oh my god like that's so weird like why are you preoccupied with that so like, no, not all straights. Hashtag not all straights. Most people listening to this will probably be straight. I don't know. Or not. It doesn't matter. But it, thing, it shouldn't matter. Yeah. I think that Lindsay Ellis did a show in the not too recent past or not too distant past, rather, talking about why bathrooms specifically. And it's the same worn out theme, which was being applied to gay people beforehand of trans people being predators. That's exactly the same thing they did with gay people. And they're trotting that one out again. And unfortunately, potentially having a little more success with it. And it just drives me up a wall. You know why that really just fails to register in my head? Because let me ask people the number of times that in the fiction you consume, bathrooms or your characters needing to go to the bathroom is actually brought up. It's surprisingly infrequent. <laughs> we don't give a shit about it. Nobody gives Ironically. a shit about it. Yeah. <laughs> so just move past it. That, when we were watching Copycat recently, it was like, oh, no. Because we were just like, it's Sigourney Weaver in a bathroom. And we're like, no, please, no. And then Harry Connick Jr., dressed as a man with high-heeled shoes, comes bursting out of another cubicle going, ho, 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 I got in dressed as a woman. What a dumb... I, I was just like, oh, God. It was movies like this and fucking Signs of the Land in the 90s that were just like, yes, bathroom predators. What was the other one with John Lithgow? The... Um, hmm. I can't remember. That's not that season of Dexter, is it? I genuinely no, 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 can't remember. No, no. No. Raising um, Cain? Raising Cain, well remembered, yeah. Uh, ah. That's the uh, um, uh, Brian De Palma film where uh, he has multiple split personalities and one of them is a woman... And Split, again, the most evil of them, apart mm-hmm. from the Beast, maybe, is the woman. Because mm-hmm. there's nothing more terrifying than a man dressed as or acting like a woman, or vice versa, but more the first one. I'm convinced that for this particular demographic, 50% of the sketches of Monty Python is horror to them. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that that was one of the main reasons I was like, right, I, I need we need to have a trans character played by a trans actor, and this needs to be someone who you immediately warm to, not necessarily because they're trans, and not even because they're nice. Like, <laughs> Atar is not nice. Mm-hmm. He's such Atar an asshole. Just, I love he's a son of a bitch sometimes, but he's <laughs> funny. And I just did the whole Tony Stark thing where it's like, look, you could have the worst person in the world, but if they make you go, <laughs> then you'll watch them do stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you slowly start peeling away those layers and realize just how soft Atar is underneath. And you start to really, really root for him. Before we move on, I am going to say... Uh, In regards to the question that started us off, I've come around to what Toby had to say about this, Mm -hmm. specifically because I rewatched Crimson Peak last night. Oh, good choice. And that that is a great example of something that is equally romance and horror Mm -hmm. and has a tragic ending. But I would never say that the romance isn't a driving factor in that story. I don't know if this is career suicide for me to say, so uh, I'll keep this clip isolated to this. But as someone who wants to go into a career of academia uh, in arts and humanities, and there is so much discourse around genres, I'm so fucking tired about discussing if something's this genre or that genre. It's it has flavors of a lot of it, and I'm happy. One might say a spice. Mm. <laughs> mm, delicious spices. We're gonna mm. do a show on that. Exactly what uh, Toby's saying. Would, would like mm. would one of you at least or both like to come on this thing? Absolutely. You're... It's uh, not to, to eliminate genres. We can't we can't do anything to get rid of people saying that's a horror movie. Mm. What we can mm. do is help our multitudes of listeners think deeper about what they're watching Get and reading. Get comfortable with ambiguity. That's a good way of putting yeah. it. And I've always been fond mm. of the idea of being able to live with conflicting ideas in my mind at the same time. It keeps my brain active. Yeah. Mm, and wow. I think there's, there's also there's a, a shift in what genre's purpose is and whatever it was originally intended to be what it has become is marketing shortcuts like even just looking at how a a book on amazon is listed you have to select two or three genre tags that this book will fit into and it just Mm. feels like it's marketing. It's, it's a, to help. It's a box ticking. It's exercise. to help people on both sides of the equation. Yeah. We're, mm. we're, we're giving away what we're going to be talking about on this episode. But uh, <laughs> it's to help the people who want to sell the thing by got here's a box you can put it in, mm-hmm. and it's for, to help the people who want to buy the thing. They're like, I need it to say that it's a horror so that I can know it's mm. horror. Or in in your case, Greg, horror. No, thank you. Mm. Yeah, exactly. You can you can use the library classification system to get yourself to roughly the right place in the building you want to be to get the mm. books you want to get. But once you're there, you're going to have to use your own discretion to see the like what's in front of you, what each one is, and then at a certain point, sit down and read the bloody things so that you can actually see like maybe oh, I came here because I thought it I was going to hear about stop motion in uh, Europe. And it turns out I've got a chapter on communism. But wait, shouldn't this be in the politics space? Well, it's because they overlap, isn't it? 
Yeah. I've had too much coffee. Um, <laughs> we've we've only crossed off one questions thing, so I'm... Two, two questions, actually. Two questions, well, okay. Well, we're possibly steamrolling. really excellent things genuinely only occupy one genre. And if they yes. do, it's because they do what people expect of that genre perfectly. Mm. Also, I'm going to make a note in here to uh, add in a reference to an episode that Todd in the Shadows did specifically in regards to the fact that music genres are undergoing this very same sort of overlap and so therefore are having issues with the marketing as well as like music stations trying to decide what they should play if it fits into their format. Uh, the worst question you can ever be asked is, so what kind of music are you into? <laughs> it's like, what the hell just are you everything. asking me? Yeah, just because like I could show you an album, but I don't know what that even means. Okay. Clan Adam yeah. Whale song. Only <laughs> hardcore. <laughs> I think my favorite answer to this was in the like final season of Bojack, where they say, like, you know, I love relaxing lo-fi music to study and relax to. And it's just like that's that is actually an emerging genre now, isn't it? Absolutely. So it's all yeah. over my uh, meditation app. Mm. You know what? At one point I'm going to try and put together a sort of relaxing new century sort of ambience and it's just mm. like Catherine at the desk with like the sort of a version of a box tube next to uh, and it, you know the image right now you, what you can see is there and just in the distance you see a wind or with like autumn through it and I was going to say this is this is the first 10 minutes of every story isn't it because then the yeah. wendigos turn up and everything becomes very not relaxing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes. Damn active storytelling where there's always something going on. Indeed. <laughs> Just... But I'm I'm very big on clarity of language. Mm. So when somebody wants to talk about a genre, the first thing I want to establish is, well, okay, when you say adventure, what exactly do you mean? Mm. And by the end mm. of the conversation, hopefully they've explained and described something that does actually poke out from adventure in various places because everybody's going to have specific elements of that genre that appeal to them and other elements that they would prefer to avoid but you can't dismiss those elements by saying well that's not in this genre it clearly is you just don't like it Crimson Peak in particular, uh, Del Toro says on his commentary that he isn't particularly interested in making a horror movie, but he is very much interested in the aesthetics of horror and the mechanics of horror. Mm. So, I mean, that is like, I don't think we need much more than just that statement to illustrate mm. that right there he's saying he doesn't want to box himself into the horror genre and the mm. restrictions that the expectations of that constricting box requires of him. Mm. So he just wants to cherry pick from it some elements so that when you, if you showed Crimson Peak to people who like jump scare ghosts, they'd be like, it wasn't that good because there aren't enough uh, of that. Yeah. Honestly, I would, given that this started off with a conversation about what actually constitutes a romance, I would say one of the reasons that horror is so successful as a genre and always has been in film and books is because it's so fluid and it's possible to be mm. not that each individual item has to be all things to all people, but it's so nimble and able to change and be different things depending on what different mm. sections of the audience want from it that it mm. can 
be done inexpensively and mm. spread wide. Romance, I would say, is almost the antithesis of that because people's idea of what constitutes love for them is so specific, it's really hard especially in this day and age, to nail down a quote-unquote romance story that appeals to enough people to really uh, to, to have wide appeal. Mm. Mm. Or you could say that for New Century so far, I've taken the spice of romance and sprinkled it as much as it will really go into romance during wartime, mm. which is mm. much tougher to implement. The, just the mm. idea of well, what do you want to do after this is done, Annie? I, I don't know, retire. And then like, Annie was forward thinking to just being able to not have to shoot people. That was her romantic dream, just living with Butler somewhere quiet. Mm. The question that I said has a certain facetiousness to it because I mentioned that, oh, how did it feel to write a romance that has a happy ending? Hmm. Well, the point is that nothing has ended yet. Just this story closed at a moment that seems particularly hopeful uh, with and for this romance. And to be honest, there have been other romances in New Century which have had romantic conclusions. Like in Arlington, the like Annie is able to reunite with Butler. So that's a romantic ending, mm. like final destination she finds herself in doesn't necessarily mean that that story has a happy conclusion. So the problem, I suppose, that New Century finds itself in, in terms of if you are to consider the fact that these romances keep struggling because of the circumstances these characters are in, this is a favourite line I know of Greg's, which is that nothing really ever ends. There are no endings. So this is why with so much of New Century, it's about the ongoing processes of survival and romance is something that takes ongoing investment and the fact that we end at a point where we have faith in the solidity of that and that's enough that's something i mean obviously at a certain point I, it seems clear from stuff that you've said previously alex that the arc the story of new century will come to some kind of conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that as being stories on some level do have to end, at least from the perspective of we like the satisfaction of a conclusion, of the, the catharsis of this has happened, and we get some form of a quote-unquote happy ending, even if it's clear that they are still moving into the rest of their lives we only imagine that we this this is taking in fiction in general is a way to get us out of our own lives or to get a, a glimpse into the lives of others and gain some sort of whatever it is that we go to entertainment for to feel whatever emotions we want to have whatever highs and lows and everything like that but in this particular case, at least, regardless of the fact that Harry and Penny's story will continue on from here, this story, at least, has a happy ending. Yeah. Mm. Now that we've gone on our long rambling segment here, let's try and get back to the... Uh, Another uh, rambling segment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's do. <laughs> Next up, the world of autumn itself. 
each of the worlds visited so far have their own distinct flavor of backdrop. The Victorian magic fantasy of Kelidor, the post-industrial revolution of Century, the mixture of ancient worlds and pre-industrial civilizations of Rama. Autumn is something new again, where we have a greater degree of modernism and high-tech, but using an entirely different basis for the technology, which you've gone on to call crystal punk. You've cited the land of Wakanda in the Marvel Universe as being inspirational, not just from an aesthetic and technological standpoint, but also that it's an example of upending the traditional social order. So our next question becomes, how did you come around to this particular combination of setting choices? Well, believe it or not, I had the meteorite idea long, long before 2018's Black Panther, and I had no clue how that vibranium got into Wakanda in the comics. So uh, I was actually going uh, back as far as Smallville, not a show I liked at all. But I just thought of the if uh, imagine like part of a planet hurtling through space for thousands of light years, crashing into the earth, bringing with it an energy that transforms the earth at a far back enough point that it is quite different when we get to it. And that changes their key power source. They the Elaine have no interest, it seems, in fossil fuels, mm. at least not now. They may have done before but clearly not enough to uh, uh, create an industrial revolution that would j just leave their streets blackened. Well, part of that, I think, is to do with the the structure of this one great continent that you outlined mm. uh, that it was it was around. Yeah, it's like it's that... a Pangaea, so it's one massive landmass with some smaller countries and, and island nations that are sort of breaking off from it. Mm. So if that if that continent hasn't been subject to the geocentric forces that have twisted it and cracked it and mm. thrown up volcanoes here and earthquakes there, then whatever fossil fuels are down there, if there are any would not be easily accessible. Not to mention, at some point, there is a reference to the old order prior to the current matriarchal social order, wherein perhaps fossil fuels could have played a greater portion back when that was what they could have access yeah. to. But the changing of the social order also meant, oh, we found this new thing, let's remove all references or downplay the importance of that old order by taking on this new thing, this mm -hmm. better thing. I wanted it to also be sort of loosely applicable to uh, both the slowly diminishing and now fast running out fossil fuels of our own world and also a metaphor for climate change that like it's gonna happen when Penny says we're slowly dying. It like she's referring to the fact that the planet is becoming less and less hospitable for them, and there's a different response from this culture. I wanted it to be a melancholy rather than a self-delusional, panic-buying over-reliance on uh, capitalism. And so it's kind of a we know we're injured, we know we're dying. I wonder what we're going to do about that between now and the point when there's no time left. But we're also working on a way to be okay with that. Mm. This next quirk got a little borked because of people talking over each other, but it was worth saving. Alex is responding to Sharon's words about the Elaine trying to be okay with their world dying and says, there's a grace to that, which was certainly captivating 
and made me want to live in autumn. Somewhere that will confront the hard truths and actually embrace them enough to change that it becomes their identity. Mm. And it does make me wonder what autumn might have been called once upon a time before that was embraced. Mm. A question we shan't necessarily receive the answer to. Well, there are multiple words for our own planet and the world in the hundreds of languages around the Mm. globe right now. So uh, Mm. there'd be different words for it. Anyway, it's, I always meant autumn to be what the lip shells translate it to for humans, at least American humans who speak American English. Not to mention that we refer to the prime world We've referred to it as centrum and century, Mm. but obviously that's a word that comes as a result of Merlane in a completely separate story. Mm. Regular people are not calling it that unless they're key characters in the story. Yeah. Mm. Unless they've had a conversation uh, with Merlane. Yeah, they got it from her (laughs) slash him slash them. So uh, I have a question, and I'm afraid this will be a nitpicky sort of question. So if this is... So if this is what the lip shells are translated to as you specified just now american english speakers mm-hmm. should it not be called fall you would think wouldn't you but a wizard mm. did it <laughs> 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 no uh it's uh when they say uh winter fall summer fall and spring fall that was my concession to the american word for it mm. that, those are their three uh seasons rather than four also, so, I actually have no idea of the etymology when we started calling it fall, because I've heard the two words used interchangeably and everything like that. But I hmm. I don't know when one became more popular than the other in America, at least. Hmm. For those of you that are curious, I did look up an answer to this question, and there will be a link provided in the show notes as to why Americans use autumn and fall interchangeably, whereas autumn is far more prevalent in the British Isles. Um, also, on the uh, back to the earlier question you asked me about, I did mention that I had this idea a, a long while ago, and I mean a really long while ago. I had, uh, when I was first hashing out my book series in the year 2000, mm. uh, it was uh, going to be that there was a very strong African nation, because I didn't know about Wakanda that much that back then. Uh, and then there was also going to be a, a, a strong nation of women who uh, lived in the South American region. And you know, at the time, I was uh, playing a lot of Final Fantasy, and it just felt like journeying the world to meet these different cultures would be a, a really exciting part of the story. And in the end, I ended up dividing those cultures into different worlds. Hmm. If there's anything that I'm most curious about on your upcoming slate... It's this offhandedly uh, mentioned future novel where you're going to be covering what's going on in all of the other countries in Century. Mm. The Cartographer's uh, World Book. The Cartographer's oh, World that's Book, such yes. That's a good idea. If nothing else, that sounds like it's actually hearkening back to what you were doing with uh, the Cartographer's a, Handbook mm. and actually that's doing a, true... a, world, a World War Z version. Um, Having earned my right to do so after years and years of trying not to just copy Max Brooks' wholesale. Yeah. Look, sometimes you just have to like indulge after acknowledging, look, it's been on the table for five years. I want a bite of this. Uh, 
Yeah, no, I bet you know you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's something I've been holding back on uh, for the key reason that it's so big that once I do that. I can't mm-hmm. restrict it to America anymore. I can't restrict it to England. So if there's going to be any more new century, it can take place in these greater worlds or maybe outside the rest of the world or not mm-hmm. at all. The question as to whether there will be more new century after uh, phase three is very much up in the air. It might just be prequel novels that lead up to the end. Think I... about that and shudder. Right. <laughs> well, it might be nothing. Yeah. Okay, so you heard it here first, folks. There's a Carl book coming in phase four. <laughs> it's called God Damn It. And if Alex doesn't write it, Toby will. <laughs> yeah. Done. Um. This feels like a good enough moment to end our episode for this week. And I hope all you listeners have enjoyed us on our especially windy path. Have no fear. We've got a lot of questions and associated content left. We just have to record it. My only regret is that this isn't new content for Alex, but maybe re-listening to some of his answers here will help prime the pump for when our interview continues. To close us out for this week, I plan to include the outtakes from the episodes with Felix, Orion, and Maya, but since those are more conversational than comedic, it works better with a little musical bumper. Therefore, since this is not a piece of music I can see myself using for the retrospectives, Let's have a brief interlude from a pair of fellows that really love their cellos.
it's an often overlooked part of the podcasting process is the actual recording part of it. <laughs> it's not a podcast if you don't record. It's just a bunch of people talking. Are we, are we entering the if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it uh, philosophy? Yeah. Sounds like it. I mean, I guess I know the ongoing joke that uh, in the modern era, everybody has a podcast, but apparently entire industries are pivoting towards that now because every time I walk into like certain locations like Staples, they have a dedicated podcasting room that you can rent. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. I did mm -hmm. not know that. Mm-hmm. It's, really, it's, it's an interesting age that we're living in. Correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> easy button on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> Do they even sell those anymore? I don't know. They should. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, there's a need for them. <laughs> oh God! I hope my okay. My dog's already crawling all over me. I hope she doesn't do this for the whole that's, interview. That's okay. I think uh, animal involvement is a staple of our various interviews at this point, whether yeah. it's from a. Uh, interviewees or us i am currently sit beset by a fish tank on one side and my hamster cage on the other so i'm just keeping <laughs> two eyes on either of them right um, <laughs> perks of being married to a zoologist Maya, your dogs are big how in the world could one of them fit in your lap um, our our girl is actually not huge. Uh, Bubba's a pretty decent sized pit bull, but she is a little bit like she's heavy because she's all muscle. But mm -hmm. um, but she's more of a mid sized dog, so she's actually you know she's not that bad. She's just yeah. very athletic, very buff. Mm -hmm. I guess I always got the impression from the pictures you keep on posting that she seemed bigger than she was, but maybe it's just that they're muscle dogs. So it, it could be because, you know, I mean, even like when people see her, like if she stands up, she's pretty tall, but, uh, you know, mm -hmm. she's not like she's uh, she's not like a great Dane or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Whenever I see pictures of your dog and her pointed ears, I always think of Ace <laughs> like bat hound, like you could just put a cowl <laughs> over them and they yes. have, like perfect fit. They I, are very I, cute. I, anyway. Oh, nice. Okay, so conscious of people's time, so now that we have ensured we're recording, uh, Greg, shall we get started? Yes. Everyone warmed up, everyone got their drinks and various things. There's a motorbike yeah. going around, just as I said that uh, we should start with <laughs> the show. Of course. Of <laughs> but, course. But that's part of the show. As you've mm. already established, every time there's a low groan going on in the background, that's our difficult uh, Wendigo audience making mm. their presence known. <laughs> it's actually a quite terrifying prospect. Yes, I yes, mean if you I just mean, think of them as a as a semi toxic fan base, it's not as bad as the reality. But uh, I take the Wendigos over a toxic fan base. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think if you put that in context, it actually just makes it even worse. Because what if they become fully terrible? At which point they burst through your door, and well, you no longer have a face. That's yes. That's why we keep a shotgun and the Clementine to hand. You know, we just the break glass in case of toxic fandom. Uh, just to the <laughs> off to the side there. Okay. But honestly, they wouldn't they wouldn't attack us because then we wouldn't create more content. They would just be like, I have opinions. <laughs> With teeth. With teeth, <laughs> yes, that's fair. Uh, 
Something that's supposed to go out with these episodes is a bunch of outcakes. Um, outcakes. Out, out, sorry. Can I, can I get two mailed to my inbox, please? <laughs> Speaking of outtakes. A, a yeah, and there's one right there. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was saying this last time, but I think that there's something hilarious to me about the concept of a dog just looking at their owner as they're doing a podcast because it's like, who are you talking to? You've been talking for hours and I don't know who oh, to. God. They do it to me constantly. So. <laughs> But at the very least, in Theo's case, uh, apparently Kiki was kind of patient. There, there was like, okay, okay, I'm just sort of sitting here patient, being like, okay, when is it my turn? I want to participate in whatever you're going on. Okay, how about I bring my shark toy in here? I, I want to play. Look, look at the shark toy. Why aren't, why aren't you? Can't you throw the shark toy? Can't you just take a moment to throw the toy for me, and then I could bring it back to you? And now I'm participating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh boy. Very important.